0: I'm Lee Rowland. From the ACLU, welcome to At Liberty, the podcast where we discuss the most pressing civil rights and civil liberties topics of our time. The midterm elections are over and will likely be remembered for high turnout and the end of one-party control of Congress. But one particular result stands out. Florida's ballot question number four. In a historic change, Floridians voted to amend their state constitution to restore voting rights to most people convicted of felonies once they've completed their full sentences. As a constitutional amendment, Question 4 needed over 60% of Florida's vote to pass, and it sailed over that high margin. It's hard to overstate just how consequential this result is. In fact, it marks the largest single expansion of voting rights since the 26th Amendment lowered the voting age to 18 in 1971. Until yesterday, Florida was one of the few states where residents who had committed a single felony were disenfranchised for life. That means that before last night, one in 10 adults in the state couldn't vote. Close to one in three black men couldn't vote. The passage of Amendment 4 has given the right to vote back to over 1.4 million Floridians who will now be able to reclaim their place in our civic life. To mark this occasion, we're replaying an earlier episode of At Liberty where we explored the history of felony disenfranchisement and spoke with one of the leaders of this historic effort in Florida, Desmond Mead. The 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution is perhaps most famous for promising equal protection of the laws to everyone in America. It was passed right after the Civil War, and it ended legal slavery in the United States. It also grants citizens the right to vote. But not every citizen gets that right. Right now, millions of Americans aren't allowed to vote because they have a felony criminal record. That's called felony disenfranchisement. And because a huge number of Americans go through the criminal justice system, it affects a lot of people. Different states have different rules about it, and of all the states, Florida's might be the harshest. 1.6 million Floridians are deprived of their right to vote. One of those people is Desmond Mead, one of the leading voices behind a ballot measure this year that will allow Floridians to weigh in on felony disenfranchisement. But first, we're talking to this guy. Dale, the first thing which we'll literally just use to introduce you is, you know, whatever you'd want your quick nugget to be when when you come onto the show. Oh, now? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, or you can wait five seconds to really psych yourself up for it.
1: Okay. (laughs) I'm Dale Ho. I'm the director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project.
0: We brought Dale in to help us understand the history and scope of voter disenfranchisement, and why, despite that history, he thinks we're making progress so on Dale, this particular issue. What does is, what is the word disenfranchisement actually mean?
1: It just means having your voting rights taken away from you. The term felony disenfranchisement means if you've been convicted of a felony, you're going to lose your voting rights in most states for some period of time, in some states forever.
0: Why do states get to? decide that? Where where do where does the state's power come from sure. to uh, create this kind of disenfranchisement rule?
1: Well, at a very basic level, the states themselves are each empowered by the Constitution to set their own qualifications for voting. Um, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution also references felony disenfranchisement and is often cited as a source of state authority to remove people's voting rights on that basis.
0: Brief U.S. history refresher. After the Civil War, America had a period called Reconstruction. Congress passed three new amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Together, they're called the Reconstruction Amendments. The 14th Amendment, the one Dale just cited, promises everyone in America equal protection under the law, including former slaves. States that had allowed slavery had to support the Reconstruction Amendments if they wanted to rejoin Congress after the war. But as Dale mentioned, in addition to equal protection, the 14th Amendment also specifically allows felony disenfranchisement, which has always felt I'm off also a lawyer. to me. Often when I hear about the 14th Amendment, it's because that amendment has language in it um, promising the equal protection of the laws. Right. H- how can felony disenfranchisement as a concept actually appear in the very same constitutional amendment where we promise people we'll treat them equally?
1: It's a little strange, um, but it's also not that strange at, at a, a, on one level. In some ways, you know, the 14th Amendment is there to guarantee equal rights of citizenship. So people who were formerly enslaved. And it almost in some ways, sets up a contrast, right? Um, They're going to have rights, but of course people who commit crimes can still be subject to certain penalties like having their voting rights stripped from them. I mean, the 14th Amendment does embody our, I think, our nation's highest ideals about uh, equality um, and fair treatment for all people regardless of who you are. The framers of the Reconstruction Amendments, although they had very deep commitments to ideals of equality, had very specific views about voting, which don't really comport with a more modern sensibility about what equality actually requires. So it's not just felony disenfranchisement, but the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments didn't generally have problems with poll taxes, didn't generally have problems with literacy tests.
0: Can you bring us to today? What, what do dis, you know felony disenfranchisement rules look like across the country? Give us a kind of current snapshot.
1: Sure, so the current snapshot of the laws is this. There are 6.1 million people in this country who cannot vote because of a criminal conviction. Um, That's a lot of people, more people than in the state of Wisconsin. So it has a very, very significant effect on our democracy um, in terms of excluding millions of otherwise eligible Americans from participating. There are also huge racial disparities um, About 2% of Americans overall can't vote because of a felony conviction. Um, for African-Americans, it's closer to 8%. So African-Americans overall nationwide suffer a disenfranchisement rate about four times that of Americans as a whole.
0: Do you see the arc and history of felony disenfranchisement in part or in whole as a story about race?
1: In this country, that's largely the case. These laws weren't as widespread And they weren't as severe until after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, after voting rights had been granted to African-American men, that you see these laws kind of, you know, um, sprouting up like mushrooms and in more severe forms and in also very strange forms that really, I think, make clear how they were targeted specifically at African-Americans. So in Mississippi, for example, the list of crimes for which you could be disenfranchised was specifically tailored to those offenses that were thought to be committed more frequently by former slaves. So just one example, larceny was an offense that was disenfranchising. You commit larceny, you can't vote for the rest of your life.
0: And what's larceny? Larceny stealing. Sorry. So
1: you steal something, right? right? Um, Homicide, murder, not a disenfranchising offense. So If you go to someone else's farm and you kill the farmer, um, you can vote tomorrow, right? But if you go to someone else's farm and you steal that person's chicken, you can't vote. We have this very, I think, pat understanding of voting rights in this country that at the founding, you know, it was rich white men who could vote. And then slowly over time, the laws just get more and more liberal. In terms of the overall arc, that's true. But that very simplistic story misses a lot of the progress, followed by retrenchment, followed by progress, followed by retrenchment. I mean, at the founding, um, women who met the property requirement could vote in New Jersey. African-Americans who were free and also met whatever other states' requirements um, could vote in a number of states, including North Carolina, which was a slave state, which is pretty remarkable if you think about that. That progress got wiped away. After the Civil War, there was some progress, and then that got wiped away with poll taxes, felony disenfranchisement laws, and literacy tests. With the Voting Rights Act in 1965, we had about a 50-year period of expansion of voting rights. But really starting after the election of Barack Obama, we started to see a big, big pushback. And there have been countless lawsuits and battles over new restrictions on voting, things like new requirements for registration, new kinds of ID that are required at the polls, limitations on when and where you can vote more and more fights about redistricting. There's been a big push to actually make voting easier, a sort of offensive push in response to some of the new restrictions on voting. And now felony disenfranchisement is getting tossed into the mix. But what I think is really interesting is that felony disenfranchisement has been this issue that's existed for you know w- well over a century as in, as, as something that's contested there actually right now feels like a lot more consensus on felony disenfranchisement than all the other issues that I talked about, right? right? There's actually, on this issue that was so controversial 10 years ago, I feel like today there is, with there now that there is more of a bipartisan consensus about the need for criminal justice reform, and a sense that punishments have to end at some point, that uh, people shouldn't be excommunicated um, for life, that people return to society and we need to do the best that we can to in- reintegrate folks into society, including giving them a stake in civil society, um, which means um, having the right to vote.
0: This may be a surreal question to ask of someone who spent his life uh, protecting voting rights and expanding the franchise, but why is it important to have people with criminal convictions participating in elections? Well, oh,
1: that kind of begs big questions about why do we have elections and why do elections matter? I mean, some people think that we only want the best voters participating, however they might define that. Only the best people. Well, (laughs) I mean, you know, there is one theory that, you know, what an election is supposed to do is you get the, the sort of best people together to make some decisions and then choose from among them who is going to lead. And it's, you know, the same kind of thinking that gave us things like poll taxes and literacy tests, right? We want to exclude certain people from society who aren't qualified to be making decisions. That's one idea behind elections. And you can see how felony disenfranchisement might sit kind of comfortably in that conception of what it is that we're trying to do. A different conception of what we're trying to do in elections is figure out what does the majority want, right? Because if you believe that the legitimacy of our government is derived from the will of the majority, then we need to have elections to try to understand what it is that the majority actually wants. And we also want to make sure that that every segment of society is represented in that, so that our process takes different points of views into account and then helps us arrive at the best policy judgments. And when it comes to people with criminal convictions, they're still citizens. They're still Americans. They deserve to participate in our decision-making processes. And in fact, you might go so far as to think that if criminal justice policy is an issue that we need to debate and have informed policymaking about, then we are doing ourselves a disservice if we exclude the very people who have felt the brunt of our criminal justice system. Um, we can't have an informed debate about that system, the costs and benefits of it, if we don't include the voices of the folks who have been subjected to it.
0: Um, There are three states that are the worst of the worst. What are those three states?
1: Iowa, Kentucky, and Florida are states where if you commit a single felony offense, you are banned from voting for life. Any felony, and you're done.
0: And felonies can touch some Pretty nonviolent conduct that that we may not think of as being the kind of, the, the kind of crime that you would be excommunicated from society yeah, yeah, for. I right. Yeah. I think
1: if I remember correctly, in Florida, um, I think if you steal three hundred dollars worth of property, that can be a felony, Then you could potentially uh, lose your voting rights for the rest of your life.
0: How how does Florida compare to other states um, in I mean, in its voter disenfranchisement? I mean, rules? it's by
1: far the Florida is by far the worst state. Um, I mentioned earlier 6.1 million Americans can't vote because of a criminal conviction. Um, Over a quarter of those people live in a single state, Florida. 1.6 million people in Florida can't vote. And, you know, from our perspective, electoral outcomes aren't really what's the issue here. The issue is whether or not every member of our society can participate in uh, electing our leaders and participate in our civic discourse. But I will say that Florida is a state that is uh, always contested electorally between the two parties. And if you think about it, you know, uh, having 1.6 million people unable to vote in that state is a significant thing.
0: If any of those 1.6 million people get their voting rights back, it will have a lot to do with Desmond Mead and his organization's work to restore the right to vote for some of those living with felony convictions. Desmond, can you tell us about uh, the ballot initiative that's uh, up for a vote in Florida this year?
2: What the amendment basically says is that it would restore the ability to vote to individuals who have completely served all portions of their sentence to include parole or probation, Uh, However, it would not apply to individuals who were convicted of murder or individuals who were convicted of felony sexual offenses. And we set out throughout the state of Florida collecting petitions. And we were able to collect, uh, eventually collect uh, around 80,000 signatures, which was enough to trigger what we called the um, legal review process. And last, I believe, May, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that we complied with all constitutional requirements and we were given the green light to continue collecting petitions to see if we can get it on the ballot for 2018. And we made a commitment that in five months we were going to collect a million petitions and we did. And we made the ballot um, for November of 2018, ballot position number four. So we're now officially uh, constitutional amendment number four.
0: So Floridians are going to have a chance to weigh in on the automatic restoration of voting rights after people serve their time. What have you learned about felon disenfranchisement in Florida, either its history or its present?
2: Well, I mean, you know, in dealing with this issue, it's just really so complex. I mean, on, on the surface, it's very easy to, to talk about the historical aspect of it, particularly in the United States. During the Jim Crow era, but I think that there's a much deeper aspect of of felon disenfranchising, especially when you talk about the impact that it has and who it's impacting today, and and how we can change these policies here in, in the state of Florida.
0: Who is impacted? Who do you meet in your work on voting rights restoration? What what does the average person who's lost their voting rights? Look like.
2: Well, that's a great question because the average person in Florida who's lost their voting rights does not look like me. They're not African American. In Florida, you know, when you look at the people who are impacted by um, by this by this policy, uh, what you will find is that you know African Americans only account for a third, and that's part of the the challenge in dealing with this issue because. We we know what the what the historical uh, uh, roots of this issue are. You know we know that this you know was used to to uh, prevent newly freed slaves from voting. But the thing is is that this has been like a, a a tumor, you know that may have originated in one part of the body, but because it's been left unchecked, it has spread throughout the rest of the body and has affected many other parts. What has happened is because our, our, most of our narrative has been about the, the disproportionate impact that it has on the African-American community, it has created a narrative that would make people naturally assume that this is only an African-American issue or it's only African-Americans that are impacted by uh, this particular policy. In reality, the opposite is true. Um, there are more people who are not African-Americans that are impacted.
0: What's your elevator pitch to Floridians as you go around the state advocating for the ballot initiative about why they should care about letting people with criminal convictions vote? You know, especially people who themselves may have no personal experience with the criminal justice system.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I, I don't know if you call it an elevator pitch, but one of the things that I do, I ask folks, you know, I mean, would you like to never be forgiven for anything that you've done in your life? I think at the end of the day, uh, this thing is about it's about forgiveness. It's about redemption and restoration. That It's about, you know, once a debt is paid, it's paid. You know, the only problem that, that occurs is when people or folks try to politicize this issue. And But it's not as political as it may seem on the surface. It really isn't. At the end of the day, this country is about American citizens being able to have the opportunity to have their voices heard in spite of their viewpoint. So I don't care if you vote left or vote right. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is that you have the opportunity as a citizen to vote. And if I'm going to silence you because I think that you're not going to vote like I want you to vote, then we're not talking about a democracy anymore. We're talking about a a dictatorship.
0: For Desmond, it's personal. He hasn't been able to vote in Florida the state where he grew up, and still calls home. He graduated from high school in Miami, then joined the military as a helicopter repairman. But during his second enlistment, he got addicted to drugs and was kicked out of the military.
2: You know, I I still had an addiction. And so I just, I guess, sunk. Uh, I really just delved deeper into using drugs. Getting my drug of choice and using it was, like, priority. And that meant being willing to do whatever. Uh, the first interactions, of course, with um, the criminal justice system, more than likely was with me being in possession of, you know, maybe marijuana, cocaine, you know, some type of illegal drug. And getting introduced into the criminal justice system where, uh, because the majority of cases are are plea bargained out, uh, I pled guilty in order to expedite my case and to get back home. And so that's what I did.
0: In Florida, a felony conviction has the consequence of losing your voting rights. When, when you were talking to your attorneys, when you were, you know, in a hurry to get back out on the streets and use, were you aware that pleading guilty to a felony meant that you might not be able to vote again?
2: Those type of discussions was not prevalent during the time that I was going through the criminal justice system. And as a person who's an addict, you just want to get out. Back. You want to get back out to the streets so you can continue using your drugs. Um, at the time, I was homeless, still had the drug problem, and and I didn't see any need to keep going on with my life. I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I, was just, I wasn't happy with my life. I, I found myself standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on a train to come so I can jump in front of it. Fortunately, the train didn't come that day. And I uh, uh, crossed those tracks, and I I checked myself into drug treatment, and I moved into a homeless shelter, and I enrolled in one of the local colleges. And the rest is history. That was uh, the beginning of a new beginning in my life.
0: Desmond went to law school, and he passed the bar and he got married to another politically active Floridian. His wife ran for a seat in the Florida House in 2016. And that's when Desmond really started feeling the sting of his own felony disenfranchisement. How did you come to realize you couldn't vote for her? Was there a moment where, you know, your wife came to you and you guys had that talk, you know, I'm not going to be able to cast a ballot for you?
2: Well, no, it 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 wasn't it wasn't that dramatic, you know. Because here's the deal: I've been I've been advocating uh, for the restoration of civil rights since 2006, and so I was very much aware that in Florida, once you're convicted of a felony, you lose your civil rights, and one of those rights do include voting. I knew that, right? But it never really hit home for me personally until my wife ran for office and someone approach me and asked me if I was excited that I was going to have an opportunity to vote for my wife, you know, that's when, you know, it kind of hit me uh, like a ton of bricks and just like a slap in the face, I should say that, man, you know, in spite of what I've been able to overcome, well, I can't even vote for my wife. You know, when we talk about voting, there is no other quality that speaks more to citizenship than the... The ability to go in a voting booth and cast a ballot, and you know when you talk about the the, the cornerstone of a democracy, uh, we know that the ability to vote and the decision to decide which American citizens get the vote and which don't get the vote should never be left in the hands of a politician, no matter what their political preferences, whether it's a Democrat, Republican, or whatever. Voting is so sacred, you know. We don't. We wouldn't want. Politicians to make that determination because partisan politics can play a role in that. And so, you know, that was because of that and other reasons, we decided that why don't we just take that power out of the hands of politicians and put it in the Constitution to make sure as many American citizens as possible are able to have the ability to vote once they've served their time.
0: Um, Desmond, you know, as you were talking, um, you keep mentioning the concepts of forgiveness, uh, you know, in- including um, for things in-, in our past. And you aren't just talking about this on an abstract level. You go around the state telling your own story. Even just today, we've talked about your drug addiction and homelessness and, and my God, you know, a, a day where you contemplated suicide on those tracks. That's a lot to lay bare for people. And you really put your whole self out there in doing this advocacy. I, I can only imagine that's incredibly difficult. Why Why are you so open about your own past, your own struggles, and your own journey to activism?
2: Wow, oh, I think a perfect answer just came to me. You know why I'm so open? Because it's in the openness that the negative becomes a positive, right? So the things that I used to be ashamed of, the things that caused me to get to those railroad tracks and want to end my life, because I'm open with it, those things now are actually being used to create positive energy, to give other people hope. You know, our community is just like a chain. A chain can only be as strong as its weakest link, and so is our country. If our country is to be great, we have to empower those that's weakest among us. So me telling my story provides whatever fuel is needed for the people who are weak to know that they can overcome and for the people who are strong to know that there is an obligation to, for them to reach back and to advocate on behalf of people who can't advocate on behalf of themselves.
1: I really do think that what's happening in Florida is huge. You know, these laws are getting more liberal um, on a national level that's the trend. But so many people are swept up in it. And that's largely because of a few states like Florida, which are stuck in the mud. And Florida um, not only has the worst law, but it ha- it's, a, it's a huge state. So it has the most disenfranchised people of any state in the country. And if Florida moves, then I really think that the rest of the states could fall like dominoes after that. It's, it's, it's that significant.
0: Thanks for listening to At Liberty. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more great conversations like this one.